Our sermon this morning is from Luke chapter 13, verses 18 through 21. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. If you're using a pew Bible from James River, you can find Luke chapter 13 on page 820. Or you can follow along by uh, printing out or downloading the liturgy that we provided for you at jamesrivercommunitychurch.com. We're back in the Gospel of Luke uh, for several weeks now. We spent the last month or two in the book of Lamentations, considering the role of lament in the life of the Christian. What it looks like to be honest about sin and suffering. What it looks like to, to grieve and mourn as a Christian. What it looks like to trust God in the midst of sin and, and suffering. And so now we're going to jump back into the Gospel of Luke. We've been working our way slowly through the Gospel of Luke uh, since 2016. We're trying to do about 20 to 30 sermons out of the Gospel of Luke every year. And there's about a, a upwards of 120 sermons uh, that we're going to hear from the Gospel of Luke. So we should be in the book for pretty much until the spring of 2022 is the tentative plan at, at this point. So just a brief uh, backstory into the, the just the, the overall structure of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke 1 uh, is the setting. We meet the characters. We meet Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus. Uh, you know, she's informed that she's going to give birth to Jesus. Her cousin Elizabeth is informed that she's going to give birth to John the Baptist. Luke 2, Jesus is born. We get a limited glimpse into his childhood. Luke 3, we meet grown-up John the Baptist, and he is uh, just comes out swinging, calling people a brood of, of vipers, and he rebukes King Herod for his adultery, um, and he baptizes Jesus, who's also grown up by this point. Luke 4, Jesus begins his Galilean ministry. And so he, uh, he starts with this temptation in the wilderness. He goes to Nazareth. He begins preaching and teaching. He's rejected and, and sent away. Uh, verses 4, or sorry, chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9 are all Jesus traveling around Galilee and uh, calling his disciples and performing miracles, feeding people, casting out demons, healing uh, people who are blind or paralyzed or have leprosy. He's raising people from the dead, all kinds of things like, like that. He's preaching the kingdom of God. He's preaching long-form sermons. He's teaching with short parables and illustrations. Uh, at, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus uh, sets his face toward Jerusalem. And so for the next 10 chapters from Luke 9 all the way through Luke 19, Jesus is on a journey uh, to Jerusalem. And, and he's doing much of the same thing. He's still preaching, still teaching, still doing ministry, still healing people, uh, still teaching through parables, things like that. Uh, until chapter 19, he arrives in Israel and he's immediately upset because he sees all of this uh, sin and, and greed going on in the temple of God. He turns over all of the tables. In the next two chapters, he kind of gets on the radar of the religious leaders in Jerusalem and tension starts to rise. Uh, chapter 22, they enlist the help of Judas and they have Jesus arrested. Chapter 23 uh, is Jesus's trial and his verdict and his death on the cross. And then chapter 24 is Jesus' uh, resurrection and ascension back to heaven with his father. That's pretty much the whole uh, gospel of Luke, right? Prophecy, birth, life, ministry, Jerusalem, arrest, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. It's kind of the, the, the long and, and short of it. For the next few weeks, we're going to be in Luke uh, chapters 13 to 17. So we're going to be looking right in that, that area of Jesus' uh, trip from Galilee to Jerusalem. Last, uh, last time we were in the gospel, before Lent, 
uh, we were we we saw the story of Jesus healing a woman with a disabling spirit in Luke 13. So she'd been suffering for 18 years. She was bent over. She couldn't stand up straight. Jesus sees her in the synagogue and he heals her. And the ruler of the synagogue is indignant. He rebukes Jesus publicly. He tells him that he shouldn't be doing this kind of work on the Sabbath. That he was breaking a rule of the Sabbath and that's bad. And and Jesus rebukes. The, the leader, the ruler of the synagogue. And he says, uh, you know, he says the problem is not that he's uh, breaking the Sabbath per se, uh, but rather that this man was too slavishly devoted to rules about the Sabbath um, and that he just kind of needs to get over himself, right? And that he's, he says, if, if you really cared about this woman, you would happily break this rule about, about the Sabbath. The problem is not that I have broken the Sabbath because I don't love God enough. The problem is that you are indifferent to the suffering of this woman because you don't love your neighbor enough. And that episode with that woman and that ruler of the synagogue dovetails immediately into our text today in Luke chapter 13, verses 18 through 21, where Jesus uh, teaches about the nature of the kingdom of God, what the kingdom of God is like and how it works and what the economy is in the kingdom of God, what things are valued, what things are esteemed and, and prized and how the kingdom of God grows and is made into what it will become for all of eternity. So the parable is told to a big group of people. But, uh, you know, disciples, passers-by, all kinds of people. It's told to a large group of people, but the two primary participants in the conversation, the two people that are kind of the, the protagonists, if you will, uh, are, are this woman, this, this uh, sick, suffering, disabled woman under demonic influence, despised, rejected, casted out. And this man, this this ruler of the synagogue, right? This this wealthy, uh, impressive, influential, powerful, fancy uh, man. And Jesus tells this story with these two people in view in an attempt to, to help illustrate what the kingdom of God is like and how it works and what it values. So let's go ahead and read through Luke 13, 18 to 21. And then we'll, uh, we'll take a few minutes and, and think about what it's, what it means and what, uh, you know, how we can apply it to our lives. Starting in verse 18, it says, he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we ask you to come and meet us here this morning. Lord, we ask you to bless our time studying your word. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts. We pray that you would speak to us. We pray that you would sanctify us through the power of your Holy Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so starting in Luke 13, verse 18, Jesus says, What is the kingdom of God like? So go ahead, ruler of the synagogue. Uh, you, you're the go-to guy on all things God, right? I mean, you go ahead and tell me what the, you, you have a graduate degree in divinity. You are the master of all things divine. Tell me what the kingdom of God is like and to what shall I compare it? 
Let me, let me break this down for you, ruler of the synagogue, into terms that you can understand, into, into images and illustrations that you can wrap your mind around. Let me help compare the kingdom of God to something that you understand. Verse 19, the kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God grows big. It grows big like a, like a huge mustard tree, right? It grows big, but it starts small. It's kind of the, the big idea of this parable and this illustration. The kingdom of God grows big, but it starts small. And the kingdom of God in its fullest sense, in its fully realized, its fully consummated sense, the kingdom of God is massive and it is glorious and it is beyond your wildest imagination. There's, there's a theological concept called inaugurated eschatology. And it's a big word, but essentially inaugurated eschatology means that the kingdom of God is here right now. It's already here and it's not here yet. The kingdom of God is already here, but it's not yet here. And those two truths, which seem to contradict each other, kind of both are true and they both kind of exist in tension with one another. And it's called inaugurated eschatology. So, so when Jesus dies on the cross, when Jesus pays the penalty for sin, when Jesus defeats Satan decisively at the cross and, and he rises from the dead in victory over Satan and sin and death, when Jesus ascends to heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father and when he reigns from his throne... When Jesus does all of that, his kingdom is inaugurated. It begins. In one sense, God, Jesus' kingdom begins then. And it is currently happening right now. It's here already. The kingdom of God is here. Jesus is the king. We are citizens in his kingdom. And it's a present reality. But at the exact same time, the kingdom of God is not here yet. It's already here. And it's not here Yet, because because while God's kingdom is here, while Jesus is reigning, right? Well, it's also true that that heaven in the eternal state is something radically, categorically, fundamentally different than the life that we're living right now in the world that we are living right now. In the eternal state, we will live with God. We will dwell with God. We will interact with him face to face in a way that we don't do right now. Satan and sin and death will be uh, no more. They'll be decisively defeated, but they will also be completely eradicated. Life will be perfect. We won't have a broken, fallen body that can experience pain will have a resurrection body that will live on forever right and in that sense the kingdom of god uh is is not yet here and that it's that not yet sense of the kingdom of god the eternal state where we're headed together jesus is pointing to it and he's saying see the kingdom of god grows big Right? It, it's the, the place that we're headed is big and incredible and beautiful and glorious and awesome. It's like a giant sequoia tree, a giant redwood tree that towers over every other tree in the forest. It's beautiful. It's massive. It's, it's, uh, it's qualitatively different and better than anything you've ever experienced. Listen to how the gospel, listen to how the apostle John describes what that day will be like. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, 
The dwelling place of God is with man. God himself will dwell with them and they will be his people and God will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Revelation chapter 21. Elsewhere in Revelation, in chapter 7, we read, After this I looked, and behold, there was a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe, all the, or from every nation, all the tribes, all the people, all the languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. He's clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they're crying with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels are standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures. They, they fell on their faces and they're worshiping God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. It's Revelation chapter 7. The picture is, is one of just, just uh, beauty and glory and majesty and we're dwelling with God and we're worshiping God and we're enjoying the presence of God and it's life as it was meant to be lived. Everything is perfect and Jesus is pointing forward to that reality in the future and saying, see, the kingdom of God grows big. It grows glorious. It grows, it grows magnificent. Right, What we once experienced in the Garden of Eden, uh, and then what was uh, at one point kind of confined in the most holy place, the inner room of the temple, the presence of God itself will cover the entire cosmos. All the world, all of heaven will experience the unmediated glory of God. And so the kingdom of God, where we're going, is, is big and glorious and, and magnificent. It's not some increment, it's not like, like a, a 1% growth on your savings account. It's not a small incremental change. It's a massive, categorical, fundamental difference between where we're living now and where we are going. The kingdom of God grows big and beautiful and glorious. But, the kingdom of God also starts small, right? So, so for this huge, massive tree uh, that, that we see grows from a little tiny speck, so tiny that it can fit in the palm of your hand, it can fit in your on your fingertip, a small, a small, tiny speck with with humble beginnings. Think about if you were writing the story. If you were writing a story that ended, that culminated with the, the eternal, infinite glory of God spreading out across the entire universe, right? And all of God's people are there and they're worshiping him and there's no pain or suffering and everything is perfect for all of eternity. If you were writing a story that culminated like that, that culminated that big, it makes sense that it might start big. It might start, right? How would you cast the leading role for a movie like that? You, you would be looking for someone impressive. You'd be looking for the best of the best, right? You'd be looking for someone who's big and strong and talented and attractive and popular and, and charismatic. Someone, someone who has an X factor, right? All the, the guys want to be like him. All of the women want to be with him. Someone who's you know, a head taller than everyone else, like like Saul, uh, the first king of, of Israel. And you try to go get him, and you would expect for him to 
lead. You'd expect for him to kind of lead us toward that big, glorious, magnificent final reality with strength and, and demonstrations of, of power. You would expect this, this uh, you know, king of this future kingdom to inaugurate and establish his kingdom through military might. You know, he would so that he could have everything that he, he wants for the for the taking. He'd be he'd be rich, he'd be dressed in the finest clothes, he'd eat the finest foods, he'd have all of the best luxuries that life has to offer, and he would use all of these plentiful resources to establish his glorious, infinite, eternal kingdom. The end would be big, but it, the, the, the beginning would be big. It would start big as well. That's kind of how our brain works. If we're trying to establish a big, huge, glorious kingdom, we need a big, huge, glorious, strong, powerful king that can bring it about. But Jesus says the kingdom of God uh, ends big. It grows big, but it starts remarkably small. Right? The kingdom of God uh, starts small. Here's how the kingdom of God starts in, in the Bible. Right? It doesn't start with a big, strong, you know, feats of strength and demonstrations of power. The kingdom of God in the Bible starts with a, a poor teenage girl who's engaged to a poor blue-collar carpenter worker in a small rural town in a small unimpressive country thousands of years ago that's occupied by a a bigger stronger more powerful country and that that teenage girl gives birth to a son ever so it, right at the beginning there's scandal everyone assumes that this child was born out of out of wedlock to parents who were committing sexual sin he's he's born he grows up poor he humbly learns the family trade. He, he learns carpentry for his, from his adopted father. Never really achieves that much, right? Doesn't really acquire a ton of wealth. Doesn't accumulate much. He just kind of goes about his business in a very humble existence. And when he grows up, he decides to leave home and to become an itinerant preacher. And so if you thought he was poor when he was a carpenter, now he's even more poor. Now he's homeless. Now he's sleeping uh, sleeping out under the stars. Foxes have holes. Birds have nests. But no one, this guy doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. No one knows who he is. No one cares who he is. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance uh, that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected. He was a man of suffering. He was familiar with pain. Right? He was like one from whom people hide their faces and we despised him and we held him in low esteem. That's how the story of the kingdom of God starts. Humble beginnings. Small, nondescript, unimpressive. And where does it go from there? So here's our, that's, that's the leading character is this, the Jesus, this poor itinerant preacher. So how does he, uh, how does he establish his kingdom? Probably like a David and Goliath story with, with, you know, he takes on the, the powers that be and he defeats them and he establishes his rule and his reign. He overthrows the, them and establishes his kingdom through force. So now he has all the power. Now everyone associated with him has all the power. They control the government. They control the laws. They control the legislation. They won the culture war. Now they can build their kingdom in strength and charisma and power and might. Maybe you'd expect that. It's just the opposite. The kingdom of God starts small. So that poor itinerant preacher who was despised and rejected, who was traveling around doing ministry and he was homeless, he didn't overthrow the big government like you might expect. He fell victim 
to the government, right? He was arrested under false pretenses. He was accused of crimes he didn't commit. He was sentenced to death. His friend betrayed him. His other friends abandoned him. He was left all alone. He was, he was beaten and tortured. He was hung to die publicly on a cross. Everyone made fun of him. Everyone laughed at him. They scorned at him. They mocked him. And he died unceremoniously. They didn't have a, they didn't have a place to bury his body. Right? He didn't have a grave. He, he was so poor, he didn't have a burial plot to be buried in, so someone else had to lend him one, and he borrowed it. He died in abject poverty and utter humiliation. That's the start of the kingdom of God. A poor, homeless preacher is killed and dies penniless and has to borrow a grave from someone else who can afford it. The kingdom of God starts there, and yet it, it, it grows. It, 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 eventually it grows to where Jesus is on his throne, reigning in glory, but it starts small with Jesus born in a manger and dying on a cross. The idea is foreign to us, right? We love the idea of it ending big, of it growing big, but the idea of it, smarting, of it starting small and having humble beginnings is, is foreign to us. It was, it was foreign to Jesus' followers in their, in their time. Right in Mark 9, uh, we read that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Jesus says to his followers, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill the Son of Man, and after three days, he will rise. So he's saying, these are the humble beginnings to the kingdom that we're all looking forward to. And their response, they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. So, so the, the Jesus followers realized all too well that the kingdom of God was going to end big, but they didn't understand that it was going to start small. So it's, it's, it's true on a, on a grand scale with the, with the universal collective corporate church. Jesus is building this big, huge, massive kingdom with millions, billions of followers. They're going to worship him forever. That started small, but it's also true on an individual level with each and every Christian, right? Your story, my story, individually, it might very well end big. With us dwelling in the presence of God, under the glorious rule of God, in the eternal, magnificent new heavens and new earth. Our story ends big. But how does our story start individually? Oh, well, surely surely our individual stories start by God uh, picking the, the best and the brightest and the most impressive and the most successful. And, and God comprises his kingdom of these, uh, these first round draft picks that he wants. The best of the best, the most godly, the most righteous. And surely those people get into God's kingdom. They win a contest, right? They're, they're, it, they, it costs a huge sum of money that only a few people can afford. Or you have to do something historically noteworthy. And everyone thinks that you're awesome. And that's why God picks you to be in his kingdom. Surely that's how our individual stories start. It ends big in the presence of God, but it starts big by being awesome and deserving of it. Quite the opposite, right? In the economy of the kingdom of God, things end big with us being in God's presence, but they start small, right? Our story of coming into the kingdom of God doesn't start with, with us summoning our strength and our intelligence and our righteousness and deciding to be a better person and coming to God on the basis of our own merit. Our story of coming into the kingdom of God starts with us coming to the end of ourselves, 
and saying, I have blown it. I have made a mess of my life. I have made shipwreck of my life. I'll never be able to get things right. I'll never be able to save myself. I need someone else to save me. I need someone else to come bail me out. I need someone else to do what I could not do, to accomplish what I could not accomplish, to pay the penalty that I could not afford, to earn the salvation that I could not earn. And then I need them to give it to me free of charge. Even though I have nothing to offer them in return. That's the smallness of how our individual stories of coming into the kingdom of God start. With having nothing and being completely and totally in need of God's grace. Of course, that's exactly that's exactly what Jesus does provide, right? Jesus does pay for our sin. He does pay our penalty. He does take the wrath of God that should have been ours. He does welcome us into his kingdom. He does invite us to trust him and place our faith in him and to identify with him and to hide in him. And he does take our sin and he's punished as if our sin was his. And he does give us his righteousness and we are rewarded as if his righteousness was ours, right? The, the barrier of entry into the kingdom of God, the price of admission is not righteousness or holiness or competence or aptitude or intellect or strength or, or power. The price of admission into the kingdom of God is weakness. It's total, complete, utter weakness. Confessing that you're weak confessing that you're broken, confessing that you cannot accomplish your salvation on your own, and effectively giving up, right? It's saying, I'm going to stop trying and start trusting. I'm going to stop trying to earn God's favor, and I'm going to start trusting that God loves me because of Jesus and who he is and what he has done for me. The kingdom of God ends big, eternity with God, glorious new heavens and new earth, but it starts small with individual repentance and faith, turning from our sin and trusting in Christ. But it doesn't... It doesn't just uh, end big. It doesn't just start small, but it also grows slowly, right? The seed, the mustard seed, doesn't grow into the tree overnight with one big, huge, momentous, impressive, uh, sensational growth spurt from speck to giant sequoia tree. It starts small and it grows slow, almost imperceptibly slow, right? If you sit there and stare at a seed waiting for it to become a tree, It'll take a long time and you actually won't be able to see it grow unless you speed it up in fast motion because that's how growth works. It's slow and little by little. You don't even know that it's happening when it's happening until you look back and see that you have been growing this whole, this whole time. My, my son Baxter is five months old and he's getting bigger. I can tell that he's getting bigger because we've gone through several sets of clothes already. We're on like the third round of clothing that we've had to go through and, and then, you know, put in the, in, in storage in case we have any more, any more kids. And I know he's growing because when, uh, when I FaceTime with, uh, with a family member or a friend and they see him and they haven't seen him in a month or two, they say, Oh my goodness, your son is growing so big. He's, he's much bigger now than the last time that I saw him where I can, I can tell that he's growing by looking at a picture uh, of him when he was born and then holding it up next to him right now. 
and seeing that he looks much different than he did on the day that he was born. He's much bigger and he's much more developed now than the day that he was born. But I don't know that he's growing because I see him growing. Right? I, I can't observe my son Baxter growing at any given moment. Every night when I put him to bed, as far as I can tell, he looks the same as he did when he woke up that morning. And every morning when he gets up, he looks, as far as I can tell, the same as he did before he went to bed last night. So in the moment, I can't necessarily discern any sort of significant, dramatic, discernible, observable growth spurts. But I do know that he's growing. Because it just happens slowly and it takes place over time. That's how people grow. That's how trees grow. And that's how God's kingdom grows, right? The, the primary way that God grows his kingdom from a tiny little seed to a massive glorious tree is not always through incredible, sensational, overwhelming growth spurts. More often than not, it's through tiny, small, impossible to notice, slowly developing increments. Which is it, not to say that God's kingdom never grows dramatically and, and significantly and quickly, right? There, there, are, uh, there are occasions when God's kingdom grows through massive, incredible, sensational, big spurts of growth. There are, uh, you know, world, worldwide known evangelists like Billy Graham or uh, Charles Spurgeon or John Piper. There, there are people with these huge, massive ministries, and God blesses them, and they draw huge crowds, and they're sensational, and they have massive influence. So sometimes, big, fast, observable growth happens quickly. But more often than not, more often than not, God's kingdom grows through small, tiny, imperceptible steps along the way. Right? One by one by one by one by one. An individual turns from their sin and trusts in Christ as their Savior. They begin to walk with God. They begin to practice the spiritual disciplines. They begin to read their Bible. They begin to pray. They join a local church. They covenant together with other believers and they walk with God together. And then they, they raise their kids and they tell their kids about Jesus. And they get to know their neighbors and they invite them into their home and they tell them about Jesus. And they, they live lives of godliness in their workplace and they tell their co-workers about Jesus. And slowly slowly one by one by one people come to hear about christ and they they come to turn from their sin more and more people are trusting in jesus more and more people are walking with jesus more and more people are practicing the spiritual disciplines and they're joining churches and they're being discipled and they're being mentored and they're growing into spiritual maturity and then they turn and tell others about jesus who they in turn uh, tell others about jesus and people are discipling one another and growing together none of that is terribly flashy. None of that is terribly sensational. None of it is fast. None of it is impressive. None of it is, uh, you know, it's all very ordinary. It's all very small. It's all very slow. It's all very borderline uh, impossible to notice as it's happening. And yet this normal, basic, ordinary uh, uh, means of God's people worshiping together, walking with God together, discipling one another, proclaiming the gospel to the onlooking world, and then inviting the onlooking world into a relationship with Jesus and inviting them into the church where they can walk with God. These ordinary means of grace, these slow, small, unimpressive, ordinary means of grace 
are the ways that God has determined to grow his kingdom into something big and massive and extraordinary. It starts small like a seed. It grows slow, little by little by little, but eventually it grows big and it becomes a huge, massive kingdom that that occupies the entire cosmos where the glory of God dwells and where God's people can live with him under his rule. The kingdom of God grows to be massive and glorious, but it starts small and humble. And here's an interesting detail as well. And then the birds of the air made nests in its branches. So God's kingdom starts small like a seed. It grows slow, but it grows into a big, massive tree. And the tree is so big that birds of the air are coming to nest in its branches, right? Right. It starts small through a poor Israelite man named Jesus who's crucified. It grows slow as people turn from their sin and trust in him. And more and more people begin to follow him in discipleship. But here's the radical thing that no one in Israel expected, right? It was kind of actually a sticking point for for a lot of them, right? Is that the the birds of the air, these kind of, these people from outside of the nation of Israel come and make their nests in the branches of the kingdom of God. Foreigners, Gentiles, people from outside of Israel can pledge allegiance to the king of Israel and find refuge there under his rule and under his care. Up until, up until the ministry of Jesus, uh, that thought wasn't even entertained. The thought of, of the nations coming in and enjoying the covenant blessings of Israel wasn't something that they, it was, it was us versus them. It was Israel versus the world, right? We, Israel, we had our people. We are the ones that God made the promises to. It was our forefathers that God knew and chose and walked with. It was our nation that God saved out of Egypt. It was our nation that God gave the land of Canaan to. God loved us. God wanted to bless us with a special covenantal relationship. Right, the other nations are not welcome to benefit from it with us. Right, they're seen as a, as a threat. Other nations are places like Egypt that wants to enslave us. They're places like Canaan that worship other gods and that want to kill us. They're places like Assyria that comes and invades us and destroys us. Places like Babylon that comes and besieges us and takes us captive. Right, it's it's these massive occupying uh, superpowers like Greece and Rome with huge armies. We don't want them here. They are are bad we are good god's promises for uh, are for us and not for them in fact the only promise that is for the nations is god's promise of judgment against sin that's how israel felt about the other nations and then here comes jesus and he starts interacting with gentiles starts interacting with Samaritans. He starts interacting with Romans. He starts being friendly with people outside of the borders of Israel. And he starts teaching, saying things like, I have sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring those sheep from other folds in also, and they will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock with one shepherd. And then Jesus mobilizes the Apostle Paul to go to the Gentiles and to see to it that the Gentiles are grafted in to the people of God. The the ministry of Jesus was all about taking the promises and the blessings that God gave to Abraham and to the nation of Israel and extending them to the entire world, to all Gentiles. The ministry of Jesus was all about inviting the nations, the birds of the air, to come in and to make their nest within the people of God. Come in and enjoy the benefits of the covenantal blessings 
that God had for Israel, they are now open for anyone and everyone. And praise God that that's true, right? Praise God that, that, that Jesus has opened the door of salvation and blessing to Gentiles because if he didn't, we would not be here right now. If God had kept his promises exclusive to the nation of Israel, then we would be worshiping idols instead of God, right? People in Israel would be worshiping the true God and we Gentiles would be worshiping false gods and we'd be going to hell. So praise God that Jesus took the gate of God's kingdom uh, that, that previously was open just to Israel and he flung it wide open so that anyone from anywhere can come in and experience salvation through Christ. So that, that every nation and every tribe and every people and every language can come and enjoy God's kingdom. God's kingdom starts small. But it, uh, but it grows big. It starts small, it grows slow, and it grows to be big. And then in verse 20 and 21, we see another characteristic of the kingdom of God and of its growth. We read, and, and again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of oil, of, of flour, until it was all leavened. So this is similar theme, a similar concept to uh, chapter 13, verse 19, but just nuanced slightly differently. Uh, 13, 19 uh, is about the kingdom of God's growth and specifically that it is extensive, that it grows big, that the borders are ever expanding. It's growing and growing until it covers the entire cosmos. It's big and huge and massive. Its growth is extensive. But in verses 20 and 21, we see that the growth of the kingdom of God is pervasive. All right? Verse 21 has less to do with, with how big the borders of the kingdom of God expand, and it has more to do with how the nature of the kingdom of God and the values and the economy of the kingdom of God work their way universally throughout all of it, right? Chapter uh, Verse 19 is how big the kingdom gets. Verse 21 is how universally the kingdom affects everything that it touches. And he uses the illustration of, of bread dough. A woman is making uh, three measures of flour worth of, of dough. Scholars estimate that a measure of flour is probably upwards of 20 pounds. So she's probably working with uh, near 60 pounds of flour. And she takes a tiny little bit of yeast and she throws it into a massive, huge 60-pound batch of flour. And what happens? This tiny little bit of yeast permeates its way throughout the entire batch of flour. It causes the entire batch of dough that is 60 pounds that could feed dozens, if not hundreds of people, the entire batch of dough is, is leaven. This little bit of yeast affects the entire batch of dough, and no part of the dough is left untouched. The effect on the dough is universal, it's pervasive, it's all throughout the entire batch. And Jesus says, that's what the kingdom of God is like. It's extensive, like a seed growing into a tree and being big, but it's also pervasive, like flour working its way and into an entire batch of, of dough. So here's what he means, right? He means that, that within the kingdom of God, God is the king. 
within the kingdom of God, God, God is the king and what he says goes, right? There's, there's no such thing as a small, little, isolated pocket of rebellion within the kingdom of God. God's will and God's plan and God's rule permeate the entirety of God's kingdom. And if you want to be in God's kingdom, you have to live according to God's plan and God's rule and God's reign. This means that, that in heaven, people will love God. They will worship God. They will be all about God. God will be at the center of everything. God's glory will be at the center of everything, right? No one else is going to be at the center. You're not going to be at the center. I'm not going to be at the center. Our preferences are not going to be at the center. Our comfort, our pleasure is not going to be at the center. God is at the center. God's glory is at the center. And so if, if the if the God being at the center of your existence and our existence is not exciting to you, then heaven doesn't sound exciting to you because God is the king and heaven is all about God. And this means that, that here on earth, right, that, that in our lives, God expects us to obey him with every, like, that God will not tolerate uh, pockets of rebellion or pockets of indifference within the lives of his people. He expects the gospel to permeate the entirety of their lives just as flour, just as, as yeast permeates the entirety of a batch of dough. This means that if you're a Christian, there's no such thing as holding back part of your life and saying, this part of my life is mine. God doesn't have any control here. I'll obey God and I'll follow God uh, in these select areas of my life, but in these other areas, I'm the king and God is not the king. There's a number of ways that we might try to claim sovereignty over some portion of our lives. There's any number of ways that we might refuse to obey God with one particular area of our lives. But certainly two of the most prevalent in our society today are sex and money, right? I'll, I'll obey God. I'll follow God. I'll live for God. I'll be a model Christian in every area of my life. But my money is my money. And no one can tell me what to do with it. Oh, God wants me to be generous. God wants me to give a portion of what he's given me back to my local church. God wants me to love eternity and invest in it more than I love my life now and spend money on myself now. I'll think about it because it's my decision and I'm the king and I do what I God can have all the rest of my life, but with money, it's mine and I make the decisions there. Or, or sex, right? I'll obey God. I'll follow God. I'll live for God. I'll be a model Christian in everywhere, in everywhere in my life, except my sexual life. If I'm single, uh, and I'm, I'm going to be sexually active because everyone else is. So I am going to as well. It's nobody's business except my own. I'm going to do what I want. No one can tell me what to do, right? Or other forms of sexual sin, adultery, pornography, uh, flirting with, with people that aren't your spouse, having eyes for people that aren't your spouse, whatever it is, it's my business. It's not God's business. It's not anyone else's business. It's my business. And the theological reality is that leaven works its way through the entirety of the batch of dough and leaves no area untouched. And in the economy of God's kingdom, God's righteousness and the, the gospel works its way through the entirety of every person in it, and it leaves no area of their lives untouched. And so if you're in God's kingdom, the entirety of your life is to be submitted to the will of God. Because God's kingdom is all-encompassing, and God's kingdom is completely and totally 
pervasive. That's Jesus' teachings on the kingdom of God. It, it starts small with humble beginnings. It starts with a poor man in Israel being killed and crucified and executed publicly. It starts with, it, it grows little by little, right? It grows as one person after another person after another person humbly turn from their sin and trust in Jesus and walk with God and follow God. But eventually it grows big. It grows massive. It grows glorious. It grows uh, extensive as God's glory covers the entire universe, right? And it grows pervasive as every single square inch of God's kingdom is under God's perfect, righteous, glorious, benevolent will. That's Jesus teaching on the kingdom of God. Now, remember, remember who Jesus is speaking to from the previous passage, right? Remember that Jesus is speaking, among others, he's primarily speaking to this poor, sickly, disabled woman and this rich, powerful, influential ruler of the synagogue. And so the main point is, one of these two people is big and impressive, and the other one is small and inconsequential. And Jesus is saying, God works with people who are small and inconsequential. God is not impressed by people who are big and impressive. God cares about, God is drawn to, God loves, and God loves to save people who are small and inconsequential. God takes people who are small and he does huge things with them. God takes people who are ordinary and he does extraordinary things with them. God takes people who are regular and run-of-the-mill, but if they turn from their sin and if they trust in Jesus, then God will take them and he will build his kingdom with them and they will reign together with God in the kingdom of God forever and ever and ever. God is not interested in the biggest. He's not interested in the best. He's not interested in the richest. He's not interested in the most impressive. God wants the small. God wants the lowly. God wants the humble. And, and God wants them to be faithful. And our call today is to be faithful to God in the small things. It's to be faithful to God, it's to trust in Him, and it's to walk with Him, and it's to glorify Him together as a church in the small things, knowing that God takes the small things that we offer Him, and He works huge and extraordinary and massive and glorious things from them. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have invited us into your kingdom. We thank you that you are growing your kingdom into something that is big and magnificent and glorious. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to be humble. We pray that you would help us to be content with the small beginnings of your kingdom. We pray that you would help us to be patient with the slow growth of your kingdom. And we pray that you would help us to live in such a way that you are glorified through our citizenship in your kingdom. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.